0: Um, I am. I am just. It brings me joy every graduation Sunday. Uh, for the past couple years, we've had the teenagers lead worship, and they do. They do a great job, and uh, we've got. Yep. Yep. And uh, also it's, it's a few of the different services, we've got teenagers that are working the sound booth and doing the slides and all that kind of stuff. So they deserve some credit too. So thank you guys. Um, so been a great weekend. So we are going to finish up the book of Colossians. So open up the book of Colossians chapter 4 if you would. And we, there are some uh, sermon notes in your in your worship folder if you want to pull that out. It's just a bunch of blank lines that you can take a lot of notes on. So um, I worked really hard on that one. Um, Colossians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse, we're going to go from verse 15 to verse 18, and we actually have a lot of work to do in those few verses. So let me pray for us. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to dig into your word, we thank you that you have brought us here today to um, worship you, to gather as fellow believers. We thank you that you have sent your Son Jesus to die on the cross for us, and that he rose again. We thank you that you have um, just put us all in the stage of life where we are. We thank you for those who are graduating or have graduated. We thank you that you are going to lead them, and we pray that you will, and we pray that they will listen, help them to be sheep who hear your voice. And uh, Father, we just thank you for what you're going to do this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit will teach us the deep things of God that only he can teach. And uh, Lord, I just thank you for what you're going to do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Colossians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to start in verse 16 before we start in verse 15. Paul says, and when this letter has been read among you, in verse 16, Paul says, when this letter has been read among you, he values God's word to his people being read among his people he has an expectation that you're going to hear from God's word he has an expectation that you're going to listen and paul found it important for his people that he is writing to that he realizes are god's people he he realizes that it is of the utmost importance for them to hear from god and so that's what he's that's what he's saying here when this letter has been read among you it's quite an expectation um, I'm so glad that at New Life we teach the Bible. That doesn't happen in every church, believe it or not. Um, I'm so glad that we are, uh, we are committed to teaching our kids the Bible, too. And I think we need to value God's Word just as much as Paul did with the people that he wrote to. And the, the great thing is, we have it at our fingertips. Right? We have it, you know, in written form in any language you want. We have it on a phone, we have it on an iPad, we have it on our computer. We can pop in a CD in the car and listen to the Bible read to us. So we have every advantage to hear God's word being read to us that they didn't have. They had like one letter. So Paul wrote them the letter, sent it, and then somebody read it to them. And, and imagine the people who were there uh, waiting in anticipation for what Paul has told them and what God has told them. There might have been somebody in that town who, who may have made one or two copies, which was a pretty tedious uh, process, but that's what they had. They didn't have, like we do, a Bible sitting in our lap. There was one guy reading it. And so I wonder how much we value, or you value, as an, as an individual, God's Word. Valuing it over even a sermon. Valuing God's Word even over your favorite devotional valuing God's word over your favorite nice moral story that you might like to tell Moms and dads we've been given the the obligation and especially us as fathers to train our kids and bring them up in the instruction of the Lord We cannot instruct our kids in the Lord if we don't read his word to them Parents are you reading God's word to your kids because it's right at your fingertips Husbands, We are, as Ephesians says, we're, we're to wash our wives with the water of the word. So when our wives come to us with whatever it is, a, a problem, a concern, a thought, is our first thought to be, I'm going to go to God's word and see what he says about it. Because I'm told as a husband to wash my wife with the water of the word, not with what I think, not with what I think might make her feel better, but with what God's Word says. Paul valued God's Word, and we need to do the same thing. So I want us to imagine the Christians at Colossae, okay? And they are in someone's house, probably Philemon's house, as we learned a couple of weeks ago. And they're all there in anticipation to hear God's Word read, to hear the letter from Paul that he sent, and they're all sitting there, and they're listening, and they get to chapter 4. There was no chapter or verses back then, but for our sake, they got to chapter 4 and verse 7. As we learned a couple of weeks ago, all of Paul's ministry team that traveled with them, some of them, the people listening to the letter being read, some of them they knew, some of them they didn't know but have heard of, some of them they have, you know, just, just heard stories about, or some of them might have personal experiences with these men. And so imagine sitting out there and hearing these uh, these greetings and these encouragements and prayers from these men about you. That's what they're hearing. And maybe for some of them, this is an, even an, an assurance that these men are still alive because they didn't have Facebook or cell phones or email. They didn't know exactly what they were doing. So for some of them, this was wow, they're, I'm glad they're alive. I'm glad they're doing well. I'm glad they're praying for me. So let's just quickly recap those men for us uh, today. So they, they hear about Tychicus, one who is faithful and an encouraging servant. They hear about Onesimus, who is a Colossian himself, one of them. And many of those who were sitting there listening knew that he had a shady past. But now he is a beloved brother who wants to tell them of all that God is doing in his life and travels with Paul. They hear about Aristarchus, who's been imprisoned with Paul, and he's suffering for the gospel on account of them. They hear about Mark, who's been restored to Paul's list of faithful ministers, who has written an account of Jesus' life and his gospel, which is named after him. They hear about Jesus Justice, who is a Jewish convert and has been a great comfort to Paul. They hear from, again, one of their own, Epaphras, or Epaphras. I think it's more fun to say Epaphras, but whatever. They hear from Epaphras, who works hard and has been away from them traveling with Paul. And Paul says that Epaphras has agonized in prayer for them. When was the last time you agonized in prayer for someone? When was the last time someone asked you, can you agonize in prayer for me? And Paul also mentions Luke, the doctor who wrote the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. And then he mentions Demas. Isn't it good to hear from people you haven't heard from in a while? My friend Clay Whipple, wherever he is, came over there, and I'm like, oh, it's Clay Whipple. I haven't seen Clay in a while. Isn't it good to to see and hear from people you haven't seen in a while? Who needs to hear from you this week? Who needs to hear that you're agonizing in prayer for them? Who needs to hear an encouragement that you're praying for them? Who needs to hear about your work for the Lord that you're doing? Who needs to just know that you're still around? Who needs to hear from you? There's probably someone. So that's the setting. The church is gathered listening to Paul's letter being read. And Paul put a high, high value on the words of God being read to his people. And so should we. So let's back up to verse 15. Paul says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So a couple things about this verse. He says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. So he says, the greetings that you just heard from all of the ministry team, the people that travel with me, get, take those greetings over to Laodicea, which was a city about 10 or 15 miles away from Colossae. So he says, I want you to send those greetings to them as well. It's not just for you, it's for those people. But he said it's not for just any of those people. He said it's for the brothers. Whenever you read in the Bible the word brothers or sisters in the New Testament, most of the time it's not talking about an actual brother or sister. I've had young people ask me, wow, did Paul have like a hundred brothers and sisters? Because he calls everybody brother and sister. It's just referring to other Christians, if you didn't know that. It's just referring to other Christians. So he says, Give my greetings to the brothers or brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha at the church in her house. A couple things about that. The word church in our culture. Most of the time we say, I'm going to church. That activity is happening at the church. And we're talking about this building we're in. When the Bible says the word church, never, not one time is it talking about a building. The Bible says that we as Christians are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God. This is not the house of God. Although some of us like to call it that. If you're a Christian, if Christ is within you, you are the house of God. You are the temple of God. If this place burned down tomorrow, we would still have the church. The church is made up of Christians. It's built with bricks. Or it's not built with bricks. It's built with believers. And we've got to remember that. That might change the way we talk a little bit, I think, about church. How about I'm going to join with the church in worship today? What if you said that to your co-workers? What did you do this weekend? I joined with the church to worship today instead of I went to church. Another thing um, about the brothers. John 1.12 says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we're called brothers and sisters because we're the children of God the Father. When we have received Christ and the gift of eternal life that God has offered to us and we believe in who Christ is and what he has done, we become brothers and sisters. We become part of a family that can't be broken. We become children of a father who will never leave us or forsake us. We're part of the family of God, and that's why Paul uses the word brothers and sisters so much. So let's look at a, a definition as well of the church. The church is the community of God's redeemed people. All who have truly trusted Christ alone for their, for their salvation. It's created by the Holy Spirit to exalt Jesus Christ as Lord of all. Christ is the head, Savior, Lord, and King of the church. The relationship between its members results from their common identity as brothers and sisters adopted into God's family. The identity of this family is grounded in Christ's person and work and therefore transcends any earthly distinctions of race, class, culture, gender, or nationality. True Christian fellowship is divinely brought about by God for the purpose of displaying and advancing God's kingdom on earth. And As Christians love one another and submit to the lordship of Christ, they show glimpses of heavenly realities that are to come. A building can't do that. But a bunch of people that God has changed can do that. So when we talk about the church in Nympha's house, Paul wasn't talking about a building that was built inside of a house. That'd be pretty stupid. So what he's saying is the group of believers that have gathered to worship are in her house. And I want you to send these greetings to them. Now to verse 16, where we started. When the letter has been read among you, what does he want him to do? He says, have it read to the church of the Laodiceans. So he not only wants the greetings to be sent to the Laodiceans, he wants the letter to be sent to the Laodiceans. Now that would be pretty hard. If you or I held a letter of Paul in our, in our hands, and it was the only one, it would be kind of hard to let go of it. But that's what he said to do, because Paul values God's word being read to his people. And so he says, go take it to them, give it to them so that they can read it. And then get their letter and you read that. So they're swapping letters, they're trading letters. And we really don't know what, what the church of, or the uh, letter to the Laodiceans was. Some people think it's the uh, letter of Ephesians that, that we do know traveled around from city to city. So they might have had that and they, they wanted them to read that. It might have been another letter that he wrote to the Laodiceans. We don't know. But the main point is that Paul knew that it was important... for God's children to hear from their father. How much are you hearing from your father lately in reading his word? Look at verse 17. Here Paul moves from talking about his ministry team that are with them, or with him, traveling with him, or imprisoned with him, to talking directly to one of the members of the church. So imagine again, the letter of Paul is being read to all the Colossian believers. And they're sitting here kind of like we are now. And then he says, oh yeah, and say to Archippus, I wonder if everybody, like, turned around looking for him. And was probably some wives who were like, honey, this is going to be good. Archippus, we know him, right? So he says, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. So who is Archippus? We don't know a whole lot. Um, he's mentioned one other time in the book of Philemon, if you want to turn there, um, in the book of Philemon in the first two verses Paul opens his letter by saying this. He says Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, and Timothy our brother. Most of the time Paul would dictate his letters to Timothy and uh, and he would he would write them down so he gave him some credit. And then he says to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Appia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. There it is again, the church in your house. How is Archippus described in this verse. Somebody tell me. Audience participation. A fellow soldier. Yeah. A fellow soldier. I don't think Paul just flippantly used words to describe people. He didn't just pull things out of the air because he wanted some people to sound better than they were or some people to sound worse than they were. Um, we believe here that God's word has inspired every single word of it. So he calls him a fellow soldier. That's the only thing we know Other than that, he was a member of the church at Colossae there. So he says, my fellow soldier. Paul is kind of bringing him along with himself. You're a fellow soldier with me. And I think that Paul has three things for us that tells us what a good soldier, a fellow soldier for Jesus Christ is all about. Paul in his writings um, talks a lot about Christians, talks a lot about us being at war with our enemy. He talks about us having... Armor and weapons that we're to fight with. He talks about uh, us going into battle. And he gives us three things. The first thing that a good fellow soldier for Jesus Christ does, he understands and he knows his armor. Knows how to use it. Knows what it is. And I think by, by Paul calling Archippus his fellow soldier, I believe that Archippus is a Christian who knows his armor. He knows how to use it. So let's look at uh, Ephesians 6, if you want to turn there, starting verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's our enemy. We've got to know our enemy if we're in a battle. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. In the heavenly places, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and, having done all, to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth that 's the first piece of armor that we, as Christians need to know. The armor that God gives us isn 't physical armor that we can see or touch it 's the gifts of God that He gives to us as believers that when we 're in the fight that we need to use so the first one is. The belt of truth. And I think that Archippus was a soldier who knew that Jesus is his belt of truth. Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. I think if, if Archippus is a good soldier, if we are good soldiers for Jesus Christ, we understand that the truth is found only in Jesus Christ, and he is the source of our truth. Next, Ephesians says that we put on the breastplate of righteousness. And I believe that if Archippus was a soldier who knew his truth, he also knew his righteousness. And his righteousness happens to be Jesus as well. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, it says, It is because of God that we are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus became to us wisdom from God. He became to us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So Jesus is our truth Jesus is our righteousness, and in order to be a good soldier for Jesus Christ, we know, need to know that he is the one who is our armor. The next thing, in verse 15 of Ephesians 6, says, As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So if Archippus was a good soldier, he knew the gospel. He knew the gospel that Paul had taught him. He knew the same gospel that that, that Paul taught him was the same gospel he taught everybody else. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul just shortens it up and tells them, I want to remind you of the gospel that I've given to you. It's of first importance that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. And he appeared to hundreds of people proving that it was true. That's the gospel. Paul said, that's the gospel in which you stand firm. Romans 10, 15 says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So I think, as a good soldier, we need to put on our feet the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And if we know that gospel, it gives us the peace to know that wherever we're sent as a soldier, that we're going to have peace no matter what happens because of the gospel. That's the power unto salvation. The next piece of armor, Ephesians mentions in verse 16, It says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So again, I believe that if Archippus was a good fellow soldier for Christ, and if we are too, we have to know the tactics of our enemy, Satan. I think we have to know that it's our faith that protects us from him. Hebrews 11.1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So I'm pretty sure that Archippus, even though he had never seen Jesus, his hope still rested in him. His hope did not rest in what he could do. It rested in Christ alone and in the faith that he had in him, not the faith that he had in himself. That's a lie of the world, by the way. Have faith in yourself. That's a terrible lie of the enemy. The next, he says, take up the helmet of salvation. I believe that Archippus, as well as us, if we're to be a good soldier... We have to know Acts 4:12, and it says that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, and that name is Jesus. It's the only name that we can be saved by. Paul then tells us what our weapons are. The first is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I think he was a soldier who knew how to wield his sword, and if we don't know how to wield a sword as a soldier, we're going to die. We're going to fail. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, is sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We've got to know the word of God better than we know any other book or any other movie or any other TV show. We need to know God's word because that is the weapon that we have against our enemy. That's what God has given us. The next thing he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. I believe that Archippus was a soldier who knew James 5.16. It says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as, as it is working. Whereas I memorized it a long time ago the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It sounds better. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And if we are to be a good soldier for Christ, we have to be fervent prayers. A soldier knows his armor. How well do you know your armor? Our armor is Jesus Christ. He's our truth, our righteousness, our salvation. He's our word. How well do you know the armor that God has given you? And if you don't have armor, the enemy the enemy's going to attack anyway, if would, but if you don't have armor, it's not going to look too good for us, right? So we have to know our armor. I believe the next two thing, things that Paul uses to describe a good soldier of Jesus Christ are found in Second Timothy. If you want to turn there, chapter two, Second Timothy chapter two, starting in verse three. Paul tells Timothy, Now he says, "Share in suffering as a good soldier for Jesus Christ." Paul wanted Timothy to know that soldiers suffer for Jesus Christ. There's always the possibility that you are going to suffer. And I'm not sure, I don't think many of us have suffered uh, a whole lot um, for Jesus Christ. Maybe some of us have. I'm sure some of us have. But um, Paul really knew what suffering was like. And that's why he could could come along at Archippus and say, you're a fellow soldier. You're with me. I've suffered too. Endure it. And I wonder if Paul knew we don't know. But I wonder if Paul knew that Archippus was suffering for his faith. Maybe he was getting ridiculed. Maybe he was getting beaten. I have no clue. But maybe Paul knew that this, just this little prodding of keep going, Archippus, is what he needed to continue. Paul knew something about suffering. In 2 Corinthians 11, let me read this to you about Paul's suffering. He says, I've had many imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 39 lashes. That's what Jesus received before his crucifixion. Paul received it five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once they stoned me. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, the Jews, and danger from people who weren't Jews. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst often without food in cold and exposure and apart from other things there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches as a soldier of Christ we've got to be willing to suffer got to be willing to suffer because you know what it's it's coming it's going to happen we're going to suffer in some way Something else Paul t- said to Timothy about being a soldier is in the next verse, 2 Timothy 2.4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So the word civilian here is the Greek word bios, which means life, or the day-to-day things of our life that we can get entangled in that take us away from what our duty is. Part of a soldier's job on duty is to try to put out of his mind his civilian life, to take off his civilian clothes, and to serve someone or something that's greater than himself. And when you're a civilian, you're in charge of where you sleep, what you do, where you go, what you eat, everything like that. But when you're a soldier on duty, you put all of what you want aside, you serve your commanding officer, the one who enlisted you, and they tell you where to go and what to eat and how to sleep and when to get up and everything else. It's not up to you any longer as a soldier. And so Paul and Timothy and Archippus, I think, knew that their commanding officer forever was Jesus Christ, and they had to put aside their wants. They had to put aside the things that they thought were the best and put those aside for what God says is the best and put him in charge or realize that he is in charge, whether they like it or not. I don't think every soldier enjoys everything that their commander, commanding officer tells them to do, but they do it. So we have to ask ourselves, am I my commanding officer? Am I in charge because I know the best? Or is Jesus my commanding officer? Is he the one that I should be submitting to? So that's Archippus. He's a fellow soldier of Jesus Christ. Would you or I, would we want to be put into that category? Would we want to get a letter from Paul that just said to us, Daniel, fellow soldier. Would we be willing to be put in that category where we can say, I know my armor, I'm willing to suffer, and I've submitted to Jesus Christ. Do we know our enemy? Do we know how to use our weapons? I think that Archippus did, and I think we should as well. Back to Colossians chapter 4. Seventeen. What What does he tell Archippus? He says, "See that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord." So I'm just guessing, but if Archippus is a soldier for Christ, possibly in the midst of suffering, he needed a little push from his officer, Paul. He needed him to say, "Keep on doing what you're doing." Thing is, we don't know what he was doing. <laughs> we don't know his ministry. We have no clue and it doesn't tell us. We're kind of left hanging. And so again, what if you or I got this letter and it said, fill your ministry? Two options. The first is you sit there and and again, he's sitting in the crowd listening to his name being read. And he says, see that you fulfill the ministry you've been given. So everybody's probably looking at him in the group and he's either got to sit there and look like, okay, yeah, I know what I'm doing. Thanks, Paul. I'm going to go get him. Or he still has that look on his face, but inside he's like, I have no clue what ministry I'm supposed to be doing. And I think a lot of us have that problem. We don't know what is the ministry I'm supposed to be doing. And we ask it over and over and over again, and we try thing after thing after thing, and we can't figure out what ministry God wants us to do. Well, I'm going to tell you what your ministry is, every single one of you, without a doubt. In 2 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 5, you can turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When we talk about what our ministry is, we're talking about a position of service where you're serving God by serving others. But the difficult thing is, like I said, figuring out what position you're supposed to be in and who you're supposed to be ministering to. The other difficult thing about ministry is doing it with the mindset that you're serving God. Because if you're not serving God, you're only serving yourselves. If we serve in ministry, and we do it so that when we come home, we say, boy, I really feel good about myself. That is the absolute wrong mindset to do ministry. We do it to serve our commanding officer. We do it to please him, not to please ourselves. So I think some of us need a different mindset of why we do ministry. We don't do it to feel better. There's a lot of things you can do to feel better, but this isn't one of them. Ministry is something we do to please God. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's start in verse 11. Verse 11 and 12, Paul is basically telling these people that he's trying to persuade. He persuades men to believe in Christ, and he persuades people to believe in who he is. Not in the same way they believe in Christ, but here's who I am. I've shown myself to you. I am who I say I am. I'm I'm the real deal. I'm I'm not a faker. And in verse 13, he says, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God, and if we are in our right mind, it's for you. Have you ever seen a preacher who just like walks all around, and goes crazy, and stomps and smacks his, you know thing, and they're still telling the truth, but they're going nuts. They're like out of their mind. Okay, so there were people in Corinth who were like, "That Paul guy, he's out of his mind. He's a nutcase." And then there's other people. They, those people were talking to, and they're like, "That's not Paul. Paul's not out of his mind. He's in his right mind. He's pretty calm." He's, we've had great conversations just sitting around drinking coffee. And they're like, no, he's, he's nutso. So why do, we, why do teachers, preachers do that kind of thing? Why are some points, why are they really passionate and smacking their hands on things? We don't see that a whole lot around here. But why do they do that and act nuts? But then why are sometimes, you know, you can just have one-on-one conversation. It's so calm and nice, and they've got everything in order. And why? Why do we do that? Paul gives us the answer in verse 14. He says, For the love of Christ controls us. Another version says, Compels us. He says, I'm compelled because of the love of Christ. The love I think that he has for Christ and the love that Christ has for them because he says this because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. I think Paul's saying, I've died. I don't act the way I want to act. I will act the way that God wants me to act. If he wants me to act crazy, I'm going to act crazy. If he wants me to act calm, I'll act calm. I'm going to act how Jesus wants me to. And he says, And he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Who are we living for? Are we living for ourselves and what we think is the best for me and what I want to do and what makes me happy? Or are we living for, living for Christ, the one who died for us? He knows that Jesus died for us. And Paul wants to see us live no longer for ourselves, but for Jesus who died on the cross. Sounds kind of like that soldier who is, he's not there to, to, to do the, the civilian things he wants to do. He's there to please the one who enlisted him. What does the love that you have for Christ compel you to do every morning? What controls you when you get out of bed every morning? Is it, oh, I gotta go to work because if I'm late, they're gonna fire me. That's compelling. Or I gotta go to school because if I don't, they'll kick me out and I won't graduate. I think this is a little more compelling than that. The love of Christ, the love that Christ has for us should compel us to do Something. To do ministry. But we've got to figure out what that is. is. Second Corinthians 5, 16, he says, "For from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. He says, we don't look, look at people simply based on their flesh and blood and bones and walking around. They're not just a person anymore. He says, even though once we regarded Christ according to the flesh— he says, we even just thought of Jesus as this other guy. We saw him walking around, saying some things, doing some things, didn't understand him all the time. Some of them were kind of crazy. Some of them were pretty calm, just like me. And, but he was another guy. And then he says, we regard him thus no longer. Paul says, I don't think about Jesus that way anymore. I think about Jesus as God, the one who was raised from the dead. Paul says, I've talked to Those hundreds of people that Jesus appeared to. And Jesus is real. And Jesus appeared to Paul in a pretty significant way. When Paul was a guy who killed the kids of God. We talked about being children of God. We talked about being brothers and sisters. Paul killed God the Father's children. And he put them in prison. And then God met him. And changed him. And now Paul is saying, we, I regard Christ no longer the way I did because he is God and he's changed me. How, how do you regard Christ? Is he just a nice guy who there's a good book written about him? Is he, you know, a guy who said some good things? He's just like any other prophet that we talk about or just a good guy? Or maybe you think he was a wacko. Maybe he was one of those nutcases out of his mind. I hope all of us in this room get to the point where we say, I regard him thus no longer. And come to the point where we believe that Jesus is God. He's who he says he is. And then verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ. It's just another way of saying if you're a Christian, if you believe in Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, the old sinful flesh is gone and the new has come. The new life that we have in Jesus has come. We're a new creation. So he says, I don't think about people when I look at them at work or in the hallways of school or walking on the sidewalk. I don't just see them and think they're another neighbor or they're another person going to school or another person working. They are a person a lump of flesh that God can transform and change. That's how I see him. And he says in verse 18, all of this is from God. So all of the new creation of who we become, all of the, uh, I think about people differently now. I don't just see them as people. I see them as people God can change. All of that's from God. All of the way that Paul said I used to think about Jesus one way, and now I think of him another way. This is from God. It's not something I did. Because probably if Paul would have had his way, he would have continued killing and imprisoning Christians. But God changed him. All of this is from God. And then he gives a little sidebar. He says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There is your ministry and my ministry if you are a Christian. Every single one of us. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There's no other place in the New Testament where it says God gave us you, gave you or us a ministry of blank. From this point on, none of us should ever question what our ministry is. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. To reconcile means to make right a relationship that was once out of whack. And this says, God, through Christ, made our relationship with himself right. That was once out of whack because of sin. He did that through Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection. And then it says, he tur- and then he turns around and he says, and now I'm giving you, I've given you guys, those of you who are new creations, those of you who are in Christ, those of you who've been changed by God, I've given you the ministry of reconciliation. This is the ministry I believe Paul was encouraging Archippus to do. Continue. See to it that you fulfill the ministry that I've given you to do, or that Christ has given us to do. If you ever get to that point, and you probably will, where you're like, I don't know what my ministry is. What am I supposed to be doing for God? Because God, I try all these things and it seems not to be working. Well, if it seems like it's not working, it's not working because the ministry of reconciliation is not part of your ministry. So, what is the ministry of reconciliation? We better figure that out. Verse 19, he says, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them. When we look at people, what do we see? Do we see, oh, those sinful people who don't believe in Jesus? Or do we see them as people who potentially might have their sins and trespasses and have had their sins and trespasses forgiven by Christ on the cross? That's how we need to view them. That's the beginning point of our ministry of reconciliation is how we view people. And a lot of us as Christians view people in a very terribly sinful wrong way. We look at them and try to judge them based on how they look or how they may act without seeing them as someone that God loves, who he has died for. He's reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation always, always, always has the message of reconciliation along with it. You cannot have a ministry of reconciliation without a message of reconciliation. And the message of reconciliation is what we've been talking about around here for a couple years now, and that's the gospel. The message of reconciliation has been entrusted to us, believers, to share with the rest of the world. And God has said, this is your ministry. This is how I've chosen to have my word given to to the people of this world. I've chosen you. And he says that in verse uh, 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. He says we're ambassadors for Christ, and God is making his appeal through us. God is speaking through us his words, just like he was speaking through Paul. He's saying, I've given you the gospel. I've given you that, that, that Christ died on the cross for your sins. He was raised again on the third day. I've given that to you. Now you... Go out and tell people. And I'm going to appeal to people through you. So it's not just us at work. It's God who works in us according to his good pleasure. If we look back to Ephesians 6, where Paul was telling us about our armor, Paul says to Timothy right after it, he says, he says, pray for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. If Paul had to ask people to pray for him that he would be able to speak the words that God wants him to speak, it's okay for us to ask people to pray for us as well. If Paul needed help, we need help. We need a lot of help. Who lately have you asked? Help me. Can you you pray that God would help me Share the gospel with people at school or with people at work or with my neighbors. I don't even know my neighbors. Now I'm supposed to invite them to this neighborhood Bible club. Can you pray for me that I have the right words to say? When was the last time you asked for that? Because if Paul did, we can as well. He says, pray for me that words may be given to me to opening my mouth boldly, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So what does the ministry of reconciliation look like? It's a nice big word that we could throw around. Um, What does that look like? Here's what it looks like, I think. Probably some of you um, maybe help out here in our nursery. Let's just pick that one. You change diapers and you rock babies. Can I tell you something? That's not your ministry. Your ministry is to boldly proclaim the gospel to that little baby laying there. Will he understand it? I don't know. The Bible says that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit even in the womb. So it is the gospel that is the power unto salvation. Will that baby hear it? He'll hear it. The great thing is that baby won't talk back either. (laughs) So you can practice, right? Practice on the baby, okay? You can say, oh, I got that wrong. Let me try that again. They're like, oh. Uh, you're rocking in the rocking chair, right? Somebody else is rocking another baby. What are you supposed to be talking about? The weather? No. Reconciliation, the gospel. Have you ever asked that person that serves next to you in a room here in this building, tell me, tell me about what you believe about Jesus. When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? You know, I have, I'm having a hard time understanding this part of the gospel that we talked about. Let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. That's your ministry. Your ministry's not changing diapers and rocking babies. What if you work, what if you work with little kids or bigger little kids? I work with some bigger little kids that are bigger than me. And it seems like all you're doing, i describe it as herding cats, you're, you know, you're trying to stand in the hallway and you're like, ah, oh, don't run, right? And, and maybe, maybe some of you, you think your ministry is to do that and to block the hallway so those kids don't run. Or, or your ministry is to check off somebody's name and to say that they're here, slap a sticker on their back, or, or lead a game, or I don't know what it is. That's not your ministry. Your ministry is reconciliation. So we still have to do all those things Right? But it's the mindset that we have. Remember, all those things are from God. We no longer look at these people as just lumps of flesh that run around and drive us nuts. They're not just little lumps of flesh that, that we've got to keep controlled and, and that, that we just have to make sure they're here and that they don't run away. They're little lumps of flesh that God can transform and make a new creation. And God has chosen us to be a part of that. To to use us to speak those words to them. So what if those of us who work with young people every week just pulled one, one kid aside, said, you know, did you have fun with the games? They're like, yeah. You know, that's a bad question. Like, that's what we all as parents ask. I admit, did you have fun at church? Yeah, that's a bad question. Because it just is. What if one week they didn't have fun and then they get all mad and yeah, they didn't have fun at church? I don't know. So, you pull this kid aside. Did you have fun with games? Yeah. Did you like the I don't know, opening songs? Yeah. You know, Billy, Susie, whatever your name is? I don't think I've ever asked you, what, what do you believe about Jesus? Because we're here, you know, you're here in a church, you know, and we talk about God. What do you believe about Jesus? See what they say. Don't just check a name off. That's no fun. It's fun to take a kid aside and say, "What do you believe about Jesus?" and see what they tell you. And sometimes they'll blow your mind away. And sometimes they'll have absolutely no clue. Okay. We live. We're living in a day where um, I know I've heard this year from middle school students. You mentioned Adam and Eve, and they're like, "Where do they live?" Um, we were watching a video in our middle school group of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, And it got to the point where Jesus was uh, being being slapped by the Pharisees for things he said. And in the movie, Jesus fell down and a kid turned around. He's like, Jesus just died there, right? That's how Jesus died. We're living in a world where there are people who don't know that Jesus died on a cross, and we're living in a place in Gehenna where that's true, and where they don't even know who Adam and Eve are. So please don't think that your ministry is just leading a game or checking off a name or, or hurting those cats. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation to bring the gospel to people. And if we do not do that in what we call our so-called ministries, your ministry that you have is not much of one. What if you're a small group leader? I realized a couple months ago that I'd had a small group with high school guys, most of whom are seniors. And, and for a year we've been, you know, reading the, reading the uh, Proverbs and going through Proverbs. But I realized I had never asked one of them, what do you believe about Jesus? I hadn't, you know, I hadn't taken them aside and said, you know, tell me how you became a Christian. I know that you're a Christian, but tell me when when did that happen? How did it happen? Never had that conversation in probably a year. So I started doing that with some of them, and it was, it was great. If you're a small group leader, sometime, I've been saying this this week, sometimes people come over paper, come before paper. Sometimes in your small group, put the paper away. Ask each other, tell me how you became a Christian. Our ministry is reconciliation. It's not anything else. Maybe you're placed at work. You're at work or at school where the ministry of reconciliation and being an ambassador is a little more difficult. We're a little more difficult. Why why not ask somebody to pray with you? To pray for some people. My kids are sitting down here. What we do on the way to school they pick one kid from their class or their teacher and we pray for them. And in the prayer, usually it's the same prayer every day, right? <laughs> same prayer. But at the end of that prayer, we say, and if they don't believe in Jesus, God, help them to believe in Jesus someday. How simple is that? Pray for people. And then one day, maybe, maybe you'll have the opportunity where you just step, step out and share the gospel and see what happens. The gospel is the power of, of, for salvation to those who believe. It's not you who have the power, it's God who is at work in you. So maybe we need to take a step back a little bit from what we think our ministry is. And I guarantee you, if it is lacking the gospel, if it's lacking reconciliation, if it's lacking us sharing God's truth and God's righteousness and God's salvation, who is Jesus to people, it is going to lack any growth, any transformation. So maybe we need to take a step back and evaluate what we're doing and how we're doing it in ministry. And if you're not in ministry, you know what? Sometimes we worry about what age we like of people or whatever. It doesn't matter. Our mindset needs to be, my ministry is to share the gospel. Where can I go? Because my feet have the gospel of peace there. So if I don't like middle schoolers because they're crazy, I'm still, I can still go there because the gospel is going to give me peace. If I don't know how to deal with a certain group of people, oh well, the gospel is going to give me peace. That's the power that's at work in us. The very last verse of Colossians says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So Paul's just telling them, "I I wrote this. I wrote this. And he says, remember my chains. That's pretty interesting. If we looked back at at uh, 2 Timothy 2 where we read about what he said about being a soldier. Verse 8 and 9, it says this. Paul says to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. So he says to these people, Remember my chains, I'm bound. I can't be the one to do the ministry of reconciliation so as much as I would like to while I'm in prison. You guys are doing it. Is God making his appeal through all of us. Remember my chains. But then the best part is, he says, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. Sometimes we feel bound by what we know or what we don't know, or I might say something wrong or whatever, but the word of God is not bound. If you stick to God's word, you're not going to go wrong. The word of God is not bound. Paul was bound, but the word of God was not. It went everywhere, and we still have it 2,000 years later. It's not bound. So, hopefully, we can become a little bit who I think Archippus was. A fellow soldier with Paul. A soldier who knew his armor. A soldier who knew how to use his weapons. A soldier who knew his enemy. A soldier who was willing to suffer no matter what his commanding officer did, a soldier who knew the message he was supposed to bring, so that gave him peace wherever he went. He was a soldier who was willing to give over the control of his life to someone else. It's hard to do. And I hope that we can all evaluate and think about what is my ministry and never have to ask that question again. It's the ministry of reconciliation, of sharing the gospel with other people, so that they can know that my relationship with God, who has been, which has been broken through sin, can be restored. That is your ministry. And I think Paul would say, go fulfill your ministry. Can you guys all stand up? I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. And I'm going to ask our prayer ministry partners to come up as well. And if, if you know, maybe, maybe you're thinking that you... In one of those areas of being a soldier, you need some prayer. Paul needed prayer. Paul needed people to pray for him. We do too. Maybe you've evaluated your ministry and it has been lacking the gospel. It's been lacking reconciliation. I just ask that that, that, that God would give you the courage to come and ask for prayer from one of these people. And they will pray for you. They will share the gospel with you. They will remind you of the gospel. Maybe somebody in here doesn't know the gospel, has not believed in Christ, has not become a child of God, the Father, and is not one of our brothers and sisters. I would ask you that you would have the courage to talk to one of these people as well. They know the gospel. They want to share it with you. And I want more brothers and sisters. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word we thank you that we can read it we thank you that it changes us We thank you that it can change anyone lord we just thank you uh, for the power that the gospel has we thank you that we can we have salvation that we have righteousness and truth only in jesus and nowhere else and i pray that you will just break down the pride that some of us have in thinking that we know the best way of how to do things because i know i think that way sometimes i just pray that you will help us to submit to your leadership, no matter how hard it is. And Lord, help us to know that uh, it's okay if we suffer a little bit on account of Jesus and give us the courage to share that message. Help us all to evaluate the ministry that we're in and to bring the gospel, infuse the gospel into it. And I just pray this all in Jesus' name.